You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. So today's, this session is called uh, 10 Questions to, to Ask While Planning Worship. Just in terms of familiarizing myself to you guys, my name is Mike Cosper. I'm, I've been a pastor at Sojourn Church here in Louisville since we planted in the year 2000 oversaw worship and arts um, for that entire time, also kind of did other things, executive pastor things. Um, in January of this year, actually, Sojourn has started to launch off a new nonprofit media company, and we're looking to develop resources for Christians in a post-Christian world, really trying to help Christians in the marketplace navigate the tensions of, of what's going on in culture. And so with that, I've actually stepped out of my role as a worship pastor and I'm, I'm primarily overseeing that now. Still at Sojourn, still serving as an elder, but now more like an, uh, a non-staff elder. Um, so yeah, so these are, these, are, these are 10 issues, 10 questions that I think are helpful in thinking through and evaluating our services. What, what are we doing? What are we doing that's helpful? What are we doing that's distracting? Or, or, and, and in some of these cases, what, what things are happening that we don't even realize are communicating some things um, that, that, we didn't, that we didn't realize? So I hope to leave a good chunk of time for questions at the end, too. So as we go, if I say something that bothers you or irritates you or, or raises a question for you, um, write it down. And like I said at the end, I hope to leave plenty of time. So here we go. Um, each of these is, is kind of grouped into sections. Um, and as we go, I'll kind of point out, okay, here's, here's this section. The first thing we're going to deal with, though, is context, contextualization. Um, contextualization is one of those words, I talked about this a little bit last night, but it's one of those words that can be kind of a hot button. A lot of people get irritated at the idea of contextualization because they feel like it automatically means, uh, to some degree or another, it means compromise. But when I use the word contextualization, what I'm talking about is how do we create services, how do we structure our services in such a way that they best serve our people and uh, most clearly communicate the things that we mean to communicate to our church. Um, so there'll be three context questions. The first one is simply, who is here? And, and I think this is the most important one. Um, I think that in, uh, uh, let me give you one example. There was a, a, a church that I, I had some time to work with a, a few years back. And this church was made up of primarily young, uh, 20-something guys, men, men and women, but the worship ministry was primarily 20-something guys. They'd all grown up in the suburbs. Um, They'd all essentially gone to sort of a, a good school together. They'd been part of a college ministry together. And then they moved into uh, in the inner city of a, of a large major city to try and plant a church. And they, they started in like the hip neighborhood, but then when it was time to buy a building, and I'm not talking about Sojourn, though this sounds a lot like Sojourn, um, <laughs> but when it was time to buy the building, they moved into a neighborhood that was much, more, uh, much closer to poverty, uh, much closer to a large African-American population. So they'd been there for about a year, and they wondered, you know, how come there aren't any African Americans here? Like, how have we not been able to, to, to multiply and diversify? And uh, attending their service on Sunday, they, 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 to the best of their efforts, attempted to play gospel music. Again, white guys in their 20s who grew up in the suburbs, uh, who grew up, really grew up, essentially even as musicians, the music they knew was contemporary worship. They didn't know really anything beyond that. Um, and it was going very badly, <laughs> as you could imagine. And so what was interesting about the, the, the congregation is um, you've, got to you've got to have a respect for who you are as a church. You've got to have a respect for who you are and who your leaders are and as, as uh, who your members are. And as leaders, your first priority is to serve them well. And one of the things that we're tempted to do is we're tempted to sort of look beyond ourselves and go, this is the church that we should be. This is the church that I want to be. These are the people that I wish were here. And, and so we try to sort of gear our ministries around those things. And, and there's elements of that, that that are necessary. But in the process, what was happening at this church in particular was that the, the congregation who had already gathered, had already covenanted together, was being frustrated and alienated along the way. Um, another example was a church planter I, I met with a few years back who was, who was planting a, not a suburban church, a rural church in rural Alabama, you know, a good 45 minutes away from any major city. 
and his favorite music was the stuff coming out of Mars Hill. And he was trying to get the bands at his, you know, the bands at his church uh, to make music and to kind of create a worship culture and, a, and an aesthetic around this church that looked like this church from Seattle. It didn't make, it didn't make any sense. And as you might guess, it wasn't going well. So, so I think, you know, one of, my, one of the phrases I've, I've drawn around this is this idea that if you can't be with the church you love, love the church you're with. Um, sometimes when you're church planting or when you're pastoring, you get this vision for the people that you want to reach. And, and then once you're in ministry, you find yourself serving a, a completely different crowd. Um, I believe our first priority as, as leaders is to serve the church where God has put you to know those people, to love those people. And when we think about contextualization, how do we give voice in a language that they comprehend and appreciate and understand to our worship? Um, another way to put this is, is that our leaders, church leaders' preferences, culturally, aesthetically, et cetera, need to be restrained by the desires and the preferences of their people. We need to serve them well. But that's only one aspect. There's a second aspect that's worth, with, that's worth bringing in. And the second thing is, who needs to be here? So, so that second element, that second priority, is still a priority. We need to look around ourselves and go, for us as a congregation, for where we are, for where we're planted, for, for who we are, are best suited to reach, how do we create a worshiping culture that when they come in, there's going to be something that feels familiar? Not familiar in the sense of making it easier to hear, necessarily, but again, like I, you know, that Tim Keller quote, so that the offense of the gospel is clear to them. Um, we need language that gives expression to that. And we need, you know, language, when I say language, language is a shorthand for all the ways that we communicate um, the things that would go into uh, a worship service. Uh, sort of a dream idea question that I think is helpful for this is, imagine that one night uh, you, you go to sleep and when you wake up in the morning, Jesus has appeared in a dream to everybody in, in the community that you're trying to serve, and they've all gotten saved. And you walk into, like, the center of town or your favorite coffee shop or whatever it might be, and there's all these new Christians, and they're doing the best they can. To, to, they're suddenly, they're like, we're going to write some songs. We're going to praise Jesus. We, don't, we can't contain this anymore. What would that look like? What would that sound like? What would that expression look like? That's a way to think about who needs to be here and, and to sort of dream and imagine what would it look like for this community who doesn't know Jesus to suddenly find themselves worshiping him. Third question, who has been here before us? This is another one that when we're, when we're young and in ministry, and, and even when we're older in, in ministry, this can be a frustrating question on, on certain levels. Um, the first thing is we need to learn to honor the history of our congregations, especially if we have, if we have older folks. A lot of times... Um, when, when we're young and we're excited and we have a, a, a passion for a certain way of doing things, a passion for a certain sound and all of this, we end up you know, inadvertently creating conflict in a congregation because we show up and we don't honor the past. And we don't, you know, we don't respect what, what that congregation that we've been called to serve has already been and has already done. You will alienate people and create a tremendous amount of conflict if you find yourself in that, in that position. And that's true in a church that's five years old as much as it's true in a church that's 50 years old. You know, every church, uh, a month in, every church has a tradition. They have something that they've done before, and the people who are gathered there have attached their affections and have attached a sense of ownership to, to what's been done there in the past. So we've got to have respect for that, um, even in the times when we're trying to sort of lead change and, and, and do things differently. Um, you may be wanting to bring more theological depth into a context that's, that's primarily singing, you know, modern praise songs or even, you know, gospel hymns from the early 20th century that are kind of sentimental and all of this. Um, if you don't lead that transition slowly and if you don't occasionally dip your toes back into that place in the past, I think you're doing a disservice to the congregation that's there. So don't just sing songs that were written in the last decade. Don't just sing retuned hymns. Sing some old hymns as well. Do things as well. The other reason you want to do this is you want to connect the church to the history of, you connect your church to the history of the church, whether that's by reciting a creed or singing older hymns. You want to give the sense, in the, in the context of your worship service, you want to give a clear sense that we didn't make this up and this thing didn't start with us, that there's a church that, you know, a church tradition that stretches way back that we're participating in. And 
And I think this is one of the questions, this is one of the issues that's going to get more and more and more important because of what's going on in the broader context of our culture. Um, something I've been thinking a lot about, and, and this isn't a complete thought, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there, is we're living in this time where the, the pressures of secularism and the pressures of kind of the sexual revolution and progressivism, these things are pressing more and more and more against the church. And simultaneously as that's happening, you know, that's really a, a movement that's been going on for a long time, but, but let's start looking at it from the 60s. Simultaneously, while that movement's getting more and more momentum, um, you know, the sexual revolution's getting more momentum, abortion becomes legal, uh, uh, sort of no-fault divorce, all of this, all of these things that are sort of breaking down families and breaking down sexual identity and all of this. At the same time, the church is modernizing, right? We're, we're, there's a contemporary worship movement, and then in the 80s there was this thing, there's a book by a guy named Bill Bishop that, that talks about this, this sort of demographic thing that happened all over the country where culture kind of split up so that you never had to be around people who didn't look like you. This is part, partly due to suburbia, partly due to technology. And one of the significant factors in this was what happened to churches in the 80s and 90s, the, the sort of mega church movement, where when you went to church, you were, you know, the, the idea around worship was built around this thing that when you come to church, you're going to see people who are just like you, and we're going to sound like you, and we're going to worship like, you know, the music that you like and all of this. And there's plenty that we could point to in all of that that's like, well, those were good things. You know, those were good contributions to ministry. Here's my fear, though. As, as the church has modernized and become more and more of a modern aesthetic expression, you go to church and it's, it's, it's modern technology right and left, and it's modern songs, and it's, you know, it's a, there, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing happening on the platform that connects us to a sense of history. Meanwhile, the secular pressure is coming in, and our appeal, our only appeal in terms of preserving our place in culture, I believe, in the next hundred years, is, hey, we didn't make this up, right? This isn't, this isn't us just being angry bigots. We're part of a tradition that is held to these beliefs about marriage and sexuality and sexual identity and the meaning of the body and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that goes back for, for years and years and years. The problem is if they walk in the doors of a lot of our churches and we try to say, well, this is a tradition that we're a part of, they go, show me the tradition. Everything you're communicating is this is modern, this is now, this is us, right? This is, this, this is about this moment. And so I think it's going to be really key for Christians to find their connections, not just in their, their heads, but in their cultural expressions that connect them more and more deeply to history because it's a key thing for our public witness in the days ahead. I also think one of the things you're seeing right now in culture is you see a movement away from the, these kind of modern evangelical things amongst millennials. Um, and there's, there's some interesting stuff that David Kinnaman uh, and, and Gabe Lyons have written about this. But there's this movement towards history and I think it's sort of unconsciously for these very reasons. So beyond the normal reasons in terms of saying, why should, we, why should we connect to the past? I think one of the reasons we need to connect to the past is it's a key way to preserving our place in the future. So those are the context questions. And between the three of them, who's here, who needs to be here, and who's been here before us, there's an inherent tension between all of them. They're all going to have kind of competing, uh, competing priorities. And the job of the pastor is to be thoughtful and discerning in, in working through. The job of the worship leaders and the pastors um, and, and the ministry leaders is to be discerning about how do we navigate those tensions and give expression to each of these three desires in the life of the church. Second set of questions. These uh, are under the category of the clarity questions. Um, the first one is simply, is it comprehensible? Is it clear? Um, how can we communicate the gospel how can we communicate all that we're trying to communicate in terms of doctrine and worship and all of this in ways that avoid needless jargon? Um, here's a, here's a, what I mean by needless jargon. You walk into church and somebody gets up on the stage and they say, it's so good to be fellowshipping with you today, church. I'm excited to begin dialoguing with you about the journey of the heart we're taking as the Lord sanctifies and mortifies us so we can love each other. So let's bathe this thing in prayer and ask for a hedge of protection, right? It's cliche, 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 cliche. And if you're not a Christian and you walk into the church and you hear that, you think, these people are crazy. What did that person even say? Hedge of protection? You know, bathe this thing in prayer? I didn't put love on you, but love on you is one of those uh, things that just, again, it just communicates something. It's a phrase you never, ever hear outside of the church. 
So to an outsider, they come in and you, you hear all of these sort of churchy cliches, and it's a foreign language. And there's a danger for insiders, too. There's a really crucial danger for insiders. If you spend your life in church, and church has a different set of dialogue, a different syntax, you know, a different set of cliches, right, than, than you experience anywhere outside of church, then what we're doing is we're cordoning off this sort of secular, sacred, secular distinction in people's lives. When I talk about my faith, I talk like this. When I talk about the rest of my life, I talk like this. People often refer to this kind of as Christianese. And so I think one of the priorities for us as ministry leaders, pastors, etc., is to try and find ways to give fresh language, to break out of all of these cliches, to break out of this, this kind of jargon, and find, find language that gives new expression and clear expression to the gospel without leaning on these terms. And, and if you're going to ask if the question is, how do we do that? I'm going to say, it's really, really hard. It takes a lot of work. Um, one way I like to think about this is that, you know, this is what, what we're talking about in terms of communicating this way. Um, this, is, this applies to all the, the rules of writing. You know, the good rules of writing uh, apply to le- leading worship. So, for instance, you never want to use two words when one will do. Never use a big word when a small one will do. Don't lean on theological language when you're standing on the platform. Because, you know, we do that oftentimes because it makes us feel smart. But if you're making yourself feel smart, you're making people in the pews feel stupid. So don't use a big word when you can use a small word. Don't use an unknown term without either explaining it or simply breaking it up. Find other ways to say it. They're going to be clear to somebody who hasn't read Wayne Grudem or better, hasn't memorized Wayne Grudem, because you can read it and still miss a lot. Um, we need to have sympathy for, for, our, for our congregations and ask ourselves, why should they care? Why should they care what I'm saying right now? And how do I break through to them in a way that they do care? A couple of recommendations for how you do this. This is really about a, a lifestyle practice of building an, a, an inventory of language. Um, and so building an inventory means, first of all, first off, that you need to read good writing. I think this is a really crucial thing. Um, language in our culture as a whole has just taken a beating, and it's all been sort of brought down to this lowest common denominator. And so I, when I say that, I don't mean we need to get more complex in our language. We need to get more vivid. We need to have better metaphors. We need to have better images that we're communicating with our words. So... So I think if you want to be a good communicator, you have to be a good reader, and you need to read widely. If we're just reading Christian books or just reading theology, we're limiting ourselves to a a narrow set of inventory and a narrow language. So read fiction, read nonfiction, read poetry. Um, I'd argue that for people like Tim Keller and Russ Moore, one of the reasons they're so clear and they're such great communicators is they are great readers. They read widely, they read fiction, they read nonfiction, they read read the news (laughs) in depth from good commentators. Um, they don't stick in a, in a narrow, our, our tendency is to kind of find this narrow uh, trough that we're going to stick in in terms of this is what I'm going to bring in. Read widely and expand your, your own available sense of language. I would also say study good writing. It's worth taking the time to read a few books on writing just because these are going to refresh your way of thinking about language. Um, Three, three quick examples. The first is just an essay by George Orwell that you will find terribly convic- convicting um, as a communicator. It's called Politics in the English Language. Um, short essay, um, but, but a withering critique of the way we tend to use language in public. Um, the second one is a, is a book called Quack This Way, Quack Like a Duck This Way. It's by David Foster Wallace and, and Brian Garner. Wallace was this amazing, uh, amazing contemporary writer uh, writer, teacher. Um, Brian Garner wrote this massive book on English usage. It's a usage dictionary, um, which is a whole other thing than a regular dictionary. Um, and it's basically the two of them talking about words and talking about writing and meaning. Um, Garner cares about these things because he's an attorney and he wants to c- communicate clearly in, in his legal writing. Um, and I would say both of those are, uh, the last one is On Writing Well by William Zinser, which is basically the, you know, the ABCs of writing and clear communication. Um, all of these, you know, making an effort in all of these things are going to pay off in dividends, not tomorrow, but in creating a practice of immersing ourselves in words and language over years and becoming better and better communicators. 
So second question about um, clarity. Um, when we're thinking through the, the songs, the readings, the prayers, and things that we're putting in front of people, one of the questions to ask yourself is, is it worth the cost? Um, here's what I mean. Sometimes in order to incorporate certain historic elements or stuff that's of depth theologically, um, to do it well, you need to explain it. To do it well, you need to take an extra minute and say, hey, that weird word that showed up there or that image that showed up there, here's what that means. Um, so the, you know, the first example that people often talk about with this is, is the Apostles' Creed. What do you do about the word Catholic in the Apostles' Creed? Do you explain it or do you leave it off? You know, a lot of churches leave it off because they don't want to have to explain. We don't mean, you know, we don't mean that Catholic church. We mean this Catholic church, right? Um, my favorite example of this is actually raise, my, raise your Ebenezer, right? Nobody in your church knows what, you, what an Ebenezer is, right? Like maybe 5% of a congregation knows what an Ebenezer is. This is from Come Thou Fount, you know, here I raise my Ebenezer. Raise my Ebenezer. And so you have to ask yourself, if we want to be clear and we want people to understand the words that are coming out of their mouth, which, frankly, that should be the bare minimum requirement of our thinking about worship leading. Do people understand the words we're putting in their mouths? So if you want to be clear with something like that, you have to ask yourself, is it worth the cost? To do that well, you've got to stop and say, okay. You know, and you can do it before the song. You probably don't want to do it in the middle of the song because that would be awkward. But you want to say, hey, here's this line, and here's, here's what an Ebenezer is, and here's why we sing it, and here's, what it, you know, here's how it fits within the Bible and all that. And you can do that, and it's an opportunity. You know, one way of looking at that is here's an opportunity to give somebody some, some, some history, to give somebody some depth so that when this word comes up in a song, you know, they can understand what they're saying. And you've got to ask, is it worth taking the time to do that, or do we just skip that verse and move on to, move on to the next one? Um, personally, like on, from my end, I'll give you two examples. From my end, I almost always leave the Ebenezer verse off because I just don't think it's, I just don't think it, it's not a powerful enough image to me um, to, to take the time to explain to a congregation. On the other hand, um, Kevin Twitt wrote a, a, returned, a retuned version of John Newton's hymn, Be Gone Unbelief. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful hymn, and it it's, says a lot of profound stuff. But it talks about broken cisterns, which is, again, one of these things, you're right on the fringe of some people are going to know what a cistern is and some people aren't. Um, but there's a clear scripture passage that you can take them to and say, well, here's where this comes from and here's what, here's what this means. And you can set that up in sort of a prayerful way and then as the lyric comes, they, they, have a, they have a context for it. That's a case where, to me, it's worth, it's worth the cost, but it's worth the cost of saying, let me give you a sentence or two to understand what this image is and, and where it comes from. Um, a couple more thoughts on, on clarity. Different congregations are going to be able to get away with different, different levels of this. So... Um, so if you're in a church that's, you know, if you're in a church that's in an inner city that has a mix of highly educated people and artists and entrepreneurs and then blue collar and working class and people in poverty, um, you know, I mentioned this last night, but, uh, you know, the best, the best endocrinologist in the city is sitting three seats away from a, a, a woman who's barely literate and spent her life working as a prostitute. So your responsibility in a situation like that is language that appeals to all of them. You know, and sometimes you're going to give milk and sometimes you're going to give meat and, and occasionally there's going to be things that are challenging for some of the people in your congregation. But on the whole, you want to, uh, you want to try to communicate in ways that reach to all of them. Um, you could also point to some congregations that are in, you know, there's one I'm thinking of that's in an urban context and, you know, the vast majority of people who attend that church have master's degrees from elite schools. Uh, you can get away with a lot more dense language and a lot more complex theological concepts in a place like that. Um, wherever you are, your goal is to teach is language that reaches most of the people most of the time. But you also want to teach preference and deference to your congregation. That's something Chip Stam, who was a professor here, talked about. Um, preference means sometimes I get what I want, and sometimes I'm going to defer to those, my brothers and sisters, who want something different than I want. And that applies to language, it applies to musical style, it applies to all kinds of things. Uh, last thing related to all of this would be um, these and vows. It's one of those questions that comes up. What do you do about these and vows and old hymns? 
Um, this is my general rule. Do with it what you will. But my general rule is if you're working with a retuned hymn that has a modern melody, um, and I think in those situations, it's good to give people um, uh, the contemporary pronouns. Uh, it makes it a little simpler. It makes it a little more clear. If you're retuning the thing anyway, uh, you, might as well, you might as well mess with it. That's a whole other conversation. Um, and Kevin Twitt would very much disagree with me on that. Um, at the same time, um, but my argument would be Isaac Watts would have done it to you. He would, if he were here around, he would be getting rid of these and those. Um, if you're not retuning the hymn, uh, and, it's a, and it's a traditional melody. In those cases, I say keep the formal pronouns because it's a, it's a bridge to who's been here before us. Um, last thing on this would be, uh, I can't recommend highly enough Ron and Deborah Reenstra's book, Worship Words. Um, it's just a whole sort of big picture look at how important language is in worship in, in a spiritual formation sense, in the sense that we're equipping people with language that gives voice to, to their faith. All right, next section, next set of questions. The theology questions. Um, and the first one, this is question number six, if you're numbering. And if I missed one, let me know at the end, and we'll go back and see what I missed. Question number six, is it true? This is like bare minimum requirement. Are we asking people to, to sing and pray things that, were, that are true? Um, uh, Dr. Muller mentioned the, mentioned the hymn last night, um, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. You know, I can feel the rush of angels' wings. His description was kind of perfect. This is a, you know, this is a, a, a verse that's just simply not true. We're putting words in people's mouths that simply aren't true. Contemporary worship has a, has a big problem with this um, consistently, especially around kind of uh, hyperbolic emotions and hyperbolic stuff. My, one of the examples with, of this would be the song, um, uh, Our Love is Loud. You know, our love is big, our love is loud. Um, speaking of the congregation, it's a weird, it's a, it's a disorientation from what clearly we've been given in scripture, which is our love is flawed, our love is broken, our love is idolatrous. Um, and, and so another example of this is the song Above All. I know this one's taken a beating in reformed circles, but it's worth mentioning, you know, that you took the fall and thought of me above all. Um, there are subtle ways that this gets, that, that, that false things get communicated as well. I remember being at a conference a while back, and during worship, they had like the scrolling video stuff going on. It was these little video clips that would roll through. And there was this one, and, and it, was, it went on for like 10 minutes. And it was like, there was, this, there was this beautiful little church at the top of a hill. And there's this like, you know, cool looking guy trying to run up the hill. And he keeps falling down on the hill and keeps falling down on the hill and he's running and he's struggling and he's running and he's struggling. You know, in the end of the video, he gets to the top of the hill. I just remember thinking, you know, if this were, if this were accurate, at some point there would be like the Monty Python foot just crushing the guy, right? Because <laughs> we can't get to the top of the hill, you know? But sometimes we want to communicate in those kind of emotive, emotive imagery that ends up confusing grace and ends up confusing the gospel and and, and, and using language that says what's happening from us to God is this amazing, powerful thing, as opposed to going what God has done is this amazing, powerful thing, and he draws us near. Um, that brings me to the second question here, question number seven, which is who's the hero? Who's the hero of our worship service? We were talking about liturgy last night, and, and I, I continually just want to make the case that every service that we, every worship service that we have has a liturgy. And more than that, every, 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 every liturgy is telling a story. Every worship service has some kind of emotional arc to it and is in somehow communicating a, a dialogue. Um, often, and, and I might get in trouble for some of this, so you can call me out afterwards, but, but often I think in North American evangelicalism, the flow and the emotional arc of the whole service is, is built around the sermon in a way that it actually galvanizes the preacher as the hero of the service. And, you know, you go to church and people walk in and say, I can't wait to hear from the Lord this morning, when actually what they mean, because what they've been trained to think, is I can't wait to hear from the pastor this morning. So, so one of the things, this is a pet peeve of mine. Um, like I said, this is this 10 questions. This is just stuff that's been bugging me lately. Um, 
One of these things that I think we need to really seriously think about is the whole phenomenon of image magnification in services. A lot of our churches don't deal with this, this question, but it's, it's also something that a lot of our churches are either doing or aspiring to do. So image magnification, just to be clear, so that's, you know, during the service, you've got, you know, you've got the big room and the guy preaching on stage, and they're videoing him, and they're projecting him up onto a screen, you know, behind him. It's one of those things that, that has become normal enough in our culture that when we see it, we don't really think anything about it. But the question that I always want to ask is, so what's that doing to our imagination? What are we learning, you know? This whole idea, and, you know, James K. Smith has this whole idea of cultural liturgies, which are, there are these practices that are sort of built into our culture, and in subtle ways, they're shaping our affections, they're shaping our imaginations, they're, they're shaping the way we think without thinking about the world and what it means. So, back to image magnification. The question I always want to say is, okay, so outside of Sunday morning at the church, when we're zooming in on the worship leader or we're zooming in on the, the preacher, where else do we use image magnification? Where else in our culture? And it, it's not too many places, you know? Faces that you're likely to see blown up on a screen kind of boil down to Tony Robbins, Kevin Durant, Barack Obama, and Bono, right? Rock stars, athletes, you know, um, political heroes, uh, and Tony Robbins is whatever Tony Robbins is, right? Um, and so what I, what I think is, is worth considering is, so here's this thing that exists in our culture, and the people we put up on this culture are celebrities and rock stars and heroes. And then we walk into the church on a Sunday morning, and you've thrown the pastor up there, and you're throwing the worship leader up there. And nobody's sitting in the, the pews consciously thinking, rock star, hero, politician, you know, uh, because politicians are always... Uh, pitched as saviors. I mean, listen to the, listen to the rhetoric right now, you know. Uh, Jeb Bush was guilty of it a year ago. Jeb can fix it, you know. Trump's going to make America great again. Um, Barack Obama, that whole imagery of, of, of hope and, and change and all this. Um, we, we turn these people into heroes, and that's why we project their image larger than life. And so when we're projecting the preacher larger than life, I, I wonder, when we're projecting worship leaders larger than life, are we subtly communicating these are, these are our heroes. These are the people of faith that we want you to, to, you know, to, to think of in the same way that we think of these other, these other characters. I remember at one, point, um, at one point in our church many years ago, we were talking about multi-site, and we were trying to think through, we were just beginning to think through some of the questions about multi-site and video venue and all of this, and it was kind of the moment, this was, this was the moment when everybody was going to video venue, and... Um, and we thought, well, it's worth considering. I mean, if it's okay with them, maybe it's okay for us. And so we brought in a, a tech firm to kind of consult with us on what it would take. And one of the things they said has fascinated me ever since. They said, you know, if you're going to do video venue, you know, there's the, the, the ideal way that you do this is that you have a big screen where the preacher's projected on, and then you have the side screens where you do the close shots, the IMAG shots that are zoomed in. And um, one of the things they said is they said, by the way, when you set this stuff up, the big screen in the middle, you actually want the preacher to be about eight feet tall on there. You know, you want him to be perceived a little bit larger than life. And, and the question that we asked was why? And they said, well, people pay attention to that a little, a little more easily than they would pay attention to, you know, a screen image of somebody who's regular sized. And I'm sure there's all kinds of, I'm sure there's a whole host of reasons for that. But, but this is one of the things that I continually, continually ask myself is how much is that rooted in well, this person's larger than life, they must be larger than life, right? I, I need to, to think of them in a different way. All right, that's enough on that. Um, I, think, I think alongside this stuff, we need to look at what's going on in our Sunday mornings and ask ourselves, how much of what we think of as contemporary culture is coming to us from celebrity culture? You know, what we think of as casual is, is adopted from kind of, um, again, these same, these same venues, you know, Politics, sports, uh, rock concerts, etc. Um, something else that I think I've, I've seen a lot, and I've seen it, I've seen it more and more recently, is um, one of these subtle things that we're communicating that we don't realize we're communicating is when we pull up a, you know, in the service, time for a scripture reading, and somebody pulls out their iPhone and reads scripture from your from your iPhone. And there's a spectrum here. 
in terms of, I mean, I'm sitting here hypocritically doing this from an iPad, right? Um, but I think we have to ask ourselves, what does it communicate when particularly we come to scripture readings and we hold up our phones? Um, what does it communicate to poor people who can't afford an iPhone, you know? Um, what is it, you know, to me, one of the interesting things is the moment you pull up your phone, think of it this way. If you're sitting at lunch with somebody and they pull up their phone and they're reading their phone, I mean, I've got a text here and I'm tempted to read it, right? And those kind of, those kind of perceptions are built into our culture. People, you know, there's more and more sort of, you know, um, etiquette stuff going around that says, hey, when you have lunch with people, put your phone in your pocket. The presence of the phone makes people anxious and makes people feel like you don't care. And so during a worship service, what are we communicating when we, when we pull out our phone? Um, what are we communicating when we pull out a device that's as easily a gateway to tremendous evil as it is good? Um, what is it that we're communicating when we pull up a device that is going to be obsolete in 18 months? Right? When we're trying to say the word of the Lord stands forever. Again, this is just stuff that's bugging me lately. So... Um, one of the things that I think we need to, to sort of come back to when we think about our services, to hold up against all of this sort of cultural appropriation that's built into the life of the church is the historic liturgy. This idea that the story of the service, the story of the worship service, is built around the story of the gospel. And that as clearly as possible, what people should walk away with is that Jesus is this, the hero of the story that we're telling on Sunday mornings. And so that's the evaluative tool that I think all of this technology stuff needs to be subservient to. Moving on. We can come back to that uh, when we get to, to Q&A. Um, this next section of questions would be uh, the pastoral questions. We're on question number, number eight. And this question is simply, is it participatory? Um, very simply, if the church isn't singing, praying, and involved uh, in the worship on Sunday mornings, we're doing it wrong. Worship services are meant to be the work of the people. And I think this is, I think the, I think the gathered worship of the church is kind of ground zero for spiritual formation. And the things that we're having them say and do in the worship service will stick with them from, you know, in many ways far, far more than the words that we preach. Because what we do when we gather is we're practicing things, we're inhabiting things, we're embodying things, and we do them over and over and over again, that's the process of memorization. That's the process of ingraining this stuff into our lives. And it's an incredible opportunity. You know, when we, when we equip people to confess their sins, when we, you know, when we equip people to greet one another with the peace of Christ, these are habits that can really inform their whole lives. And it's a discipleship thing. It's, it's building habits into their, their ordinary that, you know, it's building habits into Sunday morning that flush out into their, um, into their ordinary lives. This is part of the reason why the English Re Reformation was so invested in writing hymns. Um, they understood hymns to be, you know, this was, a, John Wesley referred to them as this portable theology. It's a memorable thing that you carry with you uh, throughout your days. So here's a way to begin to kind of look at this, and, and this is a way to evaluate the whole service. Um, take a practices inventory for your congregation. For a month, uh, four weeks, five weeks, keep track of everything that you've done in the service. What has the church prayed? What have they sang about? Um, how much time, you know, get down to the minutes. How much time were they passive in the service watching something that happened on the platform versus how much time were they participating? How much time were they singing? How much time were they praying? How much time were they uh, involved in, in scripture readings and in communion? Another way to think about this is separate out what you do as a leader from the platform with what they're doing and you're facilitating, right? And then another thing to, to, to another dimension to add this to this would be pull up a, a historic liturgy. Pull up, you know, any one of Cranmer's uh, Sunday morning liturgies um, and look at what the congregation is doing versus what the, the, the pastor or the priest is, is doing in that thing. I don't say that because I think we should be doing Cranmer, that we should be working through the Book of Common Prayer. I say that to say we should be rethinking um, how much we value practices on Sunday morning. One of the, the, the blessings of the free church tradition, which we're a part of, uh, I'm guessing most of us in this room anyway are a part of, 
The blessing is we have this incredible opportunity as pastors to do the work of contextualization and to think about what's going on in the hearts of our congregation and to tailor everything we do on a Sunday morning to try to serve and to bless and to meet those needs. But along the way, this other tradition came in, this other concept came in called revivalism, and that's been sort of the dominant force in shaping worship, in the, in, particularly in the U.S., for the last 50, 75, uh, 100 years, depending on who you ask. And so the reason I think it's helpful to look at something like the Book of Common Prayer is we can look at it and go, we can look at some very clear examples of here's an extremely participatory worship service all through the way, involved in praying, involved in reading scripture, um, and then involved in hymns and all of this as well. So how do our services stack up? And, and what would it look like for us to try and take steps? And I, like I said last night, take baby steps, take small steps, but find ways to involve the congregation more in the work of the service. Um, another resource that's really good on this, if you don't have it already, is D.A. Carson's Worship by the Book. Um, in his essay, his opening essay in that book, he's got a, uh, he's got a list of every, every worship practice that is either demonstrated or commanded in the New Testament. And just go through that list and ask yourself, okay, if, if all of these things are included in the worship that was taking place in the first century church, um, let's see when the last time we did them all was. It's convicting. Um, North American evangelical Christianity tends to think of our services simply in the form of songs and sermons, with the former being an appetizer for the real meal, which is the sermon. And I think it's flawed. I think it's dangerous. And I don't say that to, to in any way try to degrade how important and how central preaching is. Not a bit. But I think that we, we miss out on actually having a, a church whose hearts are attuned and in step with what's going on in the, in the sermon because we, we treat the music simply as an appetizer and not as part of the whole feast. Um, a couple of other sort of elements uh, tied in with this. Um, those of you who are familiar with Sojourn Music, you know that I'm a contemporary music guy. Um, however, I think one of, the, one of the things we have to constantly ask ourselves is are we making room for people's voices in our worship? Can people sing? Can people hear themselves sing? And, and I like loud music, and I'm not saying that I think that we have to always have you know, worship services humming at 72 decibels or something like that at a level where you can't really hear what's happening with the music. Um, but what I do think is I think there are smart ways to arrange songs and arrange services where not everything is always loud and, and, and oppressing and oppressive and coming at you all the time. Um, you can bring instruments in and out. You can open up arrangements. You can do choruses. You can do whole songs that are stripped down to simplicity. To some extent, I think loudness is a reflection of how we celebrate in our culture. Like, we like celebrating loud music. When we have big events, when we, there's moments in our lives where we want to celebrate as a community, we'll typically do that with loud music. Um, but I think it's important that in the congregation that if we're doing that, that we're also making space within the service and within uh, uh, the broader, you know, big picture of what we do from month to month and year to year, that there's space in there to bring things down very simply and so people can hear themselves sing. And actually, this is a consideration that, that, um, that traditional churches have to consider as well. One of my favorite uh, examples of this is I was in a worship service that was ear-splitting. It was obnoxious how loud it was. It was steady, you know, steady sound pressure at like 110, 112 decibels. I pulled out my phone. There's an SPL meter on it. And checked it. And it was like, this is horrible. And it was right over there. <laughs> it was the pipe organ, right? Somebody cranking the pipe organ on a mighty fortress is our God, and it was brutal. Um, I'm convinced they were doing damage to people's ears. I'm sure it's nobody who was here. It was years ago. God bless them. Um, so again, we're, um, uh, think, think of arrangements this way. Think of musical arrangements this way. It's an opportunity to invite people in, not invade their presence with our sounds. Invite, don't invade. All right, number nine. Sticking with pastoral questions here. Do our services speak to rich and poor people alike? Are we thinking about the poor in what we do when we gather? Covered this a little bit before, but, but ask yourself, um, there's, a, there's a girl in my church, 
And when she was 13 years old, her mom took her to a strip club and dropped her off and basically said I'll, you know, to the owner, hey, I'll be back to pick her up in six hours. You know, we'll split the money. Um, and this was her life. Um, this was her life for the next uh, 16 years. And 29 years old, there's this amazing ministry here in town uh, called Scarlet Hope. And they go, uh, there's like 26 strip clubs in the Louisville area. Every Thursday night, they go into 23 of them and they bring meals and they share the gospel, and they invite these girls to a Bible study. And it's just incredible what they've done. So she was tw- this girl's 29 years old. Scarlet Hope shows up, invites her to a Bible study, um, feeds her a meal. She comes. She's super excited. And she sits down um, in, this, in this Bible study, and they, they did this thing where they were, um, they were having each, you know, each woman at the table read a verse or two of the passage that they were going to talk to, uh, that they were going to read through. And it gets to her, and turns out she can't read. She literally couldn't read, 29 years old. Um, and, and of course, there's all kinds of things going on here in terms of trauma and post-traumatic stress and all the horrible stuff that she'd been through. But people like this are in our communities. Like, this is, this is an outlier in many ways, but these kinds of outliers live in all of our, in all of our communities. And so ask yourself, what happens when a person like this walks in the doors of our church? What is their experience like? Somebody who's suffered, somebody who's been through, you know, whether it's that kind of trauma or uh, an Iraq or, or Afghanistan war veteran who's come home with, with trauma and is shell-shocked and in and, 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 and a bad place, or somebody who shows up and doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. How does our gathering reach out to and offer expression to people like that when they come into our churches. One of, the things I, one of the things I think is important here is thinking through both this clarity stuff and this contextualization stuff with the poor in mind. Um, and one way to phrase it is, is to think of contextualization as a hospitality issue. We love our people well when we make our services comprehensible. And the fact is that one of the gaps that exists between the rich and the poor really is literacy, really is comprehensibility uh, of all of this stuff. And, and it's, it's worth being concerned about that in a broader sense and saying, well, we need to do something about our schools and we need to lobby politically and we need to start programs in our neighborhood that help people to read. But we should also think about our own practices and say, well, how can we open our doors wider to people who are who are coming to us from, that are the poor. How do we remember the poor? That simple command from Jesus. Um, another way that we love the poor is that in our gatherings, are we acknowledging injustice in the world? Are we acknowledging that there is injustice? Um, the Bible makes it very clear. There are people who are fo- poor because they're, they're fools, and there are people who are poor because the world is an unjust place. And uh, I think in a lot of our middle-class Middle American kind of values in the, the, the world of Dave, Dave Ramsey. Um, oftentimes, poverty gets pitched as, well, this was foolish. You were a fool. You were a fool. And the poor are victims of predatory lending. And we could go on and on and on about this. We have to acknowledge that there are poor people who are poor because of an unjust world. And so how do we acknowledge injustice? And how do we give voice in our worship to people who come to us from those circumstances? And how do we acknowledge suffering? And this is, this is my last point, and we'll have about 10, 12 minutes for questions here. Um, and spoiler alert, I kind of said this last night, but does our worship prepare people for their encounters with death? Um, I first heard that quote, uh, I keep mentioning Kevin Twitt, but I first heard that quote from Kevin Twitt. He was on a panel in, in, of songwriters in Nashville a few years back, and um, it was people kind of from all over the Christian music spectrum, and they, they asked him what makes a good song. And of course, they go down the line and it's like, you know, a good hook or a memorable lyric or something uplifting or whatever. And then it gets to Kevin Twitt and, and I can just imagine the grin on his face. And he says, I like songs that prepare people for death, you know. Um, so much of our world, so much of our hype is built around, so much of our culture is built around hype and energy and victories. And so much of what we do in church, especially if you're in a church that's, that's growing or trying to grow or trying to get some kind of momentum, is this, like, this sense of we're always trying to look at the next hill and we're always trying to take on the next campaign and we're always trying to hype people up and move them forward. But it turns out that life is a, a, a life full of sadness and disappointments. And we have a hope beyond that 
But because we have a hope beyond that doesn't mean that we don't give voice to it and acknowledge it. Because if we don't give voice to it and acknowledge it, one of the things that we're doing is that we've practiced a faith that doesn't know how to reckon with it. And so when a crisis comes, people don't know what to do, they don't know what to think, they don't know what to say, because we haven't prepared them well by teaching them to confess sin and to lament the fallenness of the world and to acknowledge that death is a problem, but Christ overcomes death. Um, Harold Best, years ago, um, he, he cited a study that he had seen where kind of following the rise of the contemporary worship movement and with it sort of the decline of hymns. I think it was a CCLI survey, um, the church copyright people, um, where they survey all these churches. And so they have a kind of a good sense of what's being sung on Sunday mornings. And there was this, you know, if you imagine sort of a graph where like the top half is, uh, is, is hymns and the bottom half is contemporary worship. You know, over a 20, 30 year window, it was like rising, 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 rising. The use of hymns was diminishing um, and on and on it went. And there was a moment where it stopped and it started to creep back the other way. And that moment was 9-11. Because what did we all sing the Sunday after 9-11? We, we, di we didn't go back to our praise songs. We didn't sing victorious tunes. And, and one of the things that, the, the, that Harold said is, Harold said the, the church didn't have the words at that point. We hadn't equipped people with the words at that point to know what to say in the midst of a, a devastating national tragedy. And so instead of doing what we always did on Sunday mornings, we said, well, where do we go? Thank God we, we haven't gotten rid of all the hymnals yet because there's a lot there. There's a lot there for us. And so I think one of the things to, to think about is um, simply thinking of moments of confession and moments of lament in our services as simply preparing people for those encounters. You don't have to wait for a tragedy to pull those songs out. And that's one of, the, one of the big mistakes I think the church makes. We wait for the tragedy and then we go, let's go get it as well because we really need it this Sunday. Um, people who come in the doors of your church need it as well today because they found out they have cancer or their mother died or their, their kid is in horrible rebellion and they don't know what they're going to do. Um, so, so having worship services that, you know, in various ways and over, thinking over the long, long haul, you don't have to do it all every Sunday. But thinking over the long, long haul, how do we put practices in front of people with consistency and regularity that prepare them for this kind of stuff? All right, I talked a little longer than I meant to. We've got about 10 minutes here for questions, if anybody wants to uh, fire away. Yeah, speak loud, because this fan's a little noisy. Foreign. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah, so the question is, um, if you're in a low church setting um, and you're looking to try to sort of incorporate more of kind of these different liturgical movements in your service, you know, is there, um, he was asking specifically about sojourn, do I see that as the model that everyone should do? Of course I do, I'm a narcissist. I think everybody should do it, I think is right. Um, but, no, I mean, the, the real answer is, um, is no. I, I don't think everybody should do what, what sojourn does necessarily. Um, I think we should think through holistically, think through practices. Um, and I think Calvin, um, the Calvin Institute for Christian Worship did this project a few years ago called the Vertical Habits, um, which was a way for them uh, that they were talking about kind of a practice inventory. Here are all the things that the church does. Uh, and it was really, it's a beautiful project. There's a lot of resources on their website about it. Um, what I always say is, um, however you build the thing, however you structure the thing, make sure that people walk away knowing Christ is the hero, 
and make sure they walk away over a long haul being equipped for all of life, for all of those things. So how, if you're in a low church setting and you're wanting to try to incorporate some of those elements, how do you do it? Um, I, I always say baby steps, but I mean it in two ways. One is, if your church has never read scripture together, just have them read a verse. You know, like don't, don't overwhelm them with, with content. Go super small first. Um, Jesus wept, you know what I mean? Like give them, give them, so, give them a softball. Um, same thing with confession of sin. A lot of times, um, I, think, I think confession and lament are one of those elements that I say, if you can, you know, try hard, find a way to do that every week um, because it's so culturally unfamiliar and so spiritually necessary that we help people kind of equip with, with that language. And, and one place to start with that is simply you as a worship leader, you know, offering a short prayer of confession, not asking them to do anything, but, but praying pastorally, Lord, forgive us our sins, etc. Um, but going really, really small, um, um, and, and not overwhelming people with content is a, is a huge thing. Go very small, go very short. Start by you leading it and then, and then inviting them to participate in different ways. Um, there's a lot of little litanies. Actually, the Baptist hymnal has some lit, short litanies that are really helpful, like litany, litany prayers. Um, the, those would be simple things to, to, to point to, especially if you're in a Baptist congregation and they're like, what's this liturgy stuff you're bringing in? It's like, oh, it's out of the Baptist hymnal. You know, we're good. Um, um, I had one other thought, and it's, it just slipped away. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I slipped the last thought. I hope that's helpful. But yeah, starting small is huge. Starting small is huge. That's a dumb phrase. Anyway, more questions? Yeah. I mean, um, number one, um, melodies need to be clear. That's one of the things, first off, with worship leaders, sing the melody very simply. Um, I, if you're a gifted singer, great. But, um, but sing simply so people can comprehend it. Second off, um, arrange the thing in such a way that, that you can hear the melody um, and that the melody is really built into the rest of the song. Um, if, you know, if your melodic instruments can find ways to support the melody and to play the melody in between verses and things like that, I think that's another, another way. Just get it in people's heads. And then the third thing is just the dynamics of the song. Um, I think when you're starting a song, um, especially those opening verses, those opening things, strip things back as much as possible to, so, that, so that, it, that there's an openness to the sound that people can participate in. Um, contemporary, contemporary music in general likes to kind of come out with a bang. And, and if you do that for an intro, great, but then pull it back and make sure that when the singing starts, that that's the center of things. But, yeah. More questions? Yeah. 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 Say the, say the last part of that again. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. From from less reliable resources theologically. Okay, so to me, this is, this is a great question. What do you do about songs that were written from people who um, give you the heebie-jeebies otherwise, right? Um, so I think, there's, I think there's, the big thing is a context question. Um, if you put this song in front of your congregation, is your, do you believe your congregation is going to follow that rabbit trail to its source for, uh, and get themselves in trouble, Right? Um, so you play a Bethel song, and they're like, hey, I really like this Bethel thing. I'm going to start listening to their CDs. I'm, I'm, I'm going to see if they've got any YouTube videos. And the next thing they know, they're talking to you about glory clouds, right? Um, that's a thing. Um, so I think, that's, I, think that's an, I think that's a question for pastoral discernment. It really is. Um, if you feel like your congregation is going to go there and be troubled by it, then, then maybe stay away from it. Um, but, I mean, the... To, to go back to sort of the, when you, when you ask this question historically, it gets really interesting because um, uh, Robert Robinson, um, who wrote Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, um, died notoriously a, a drunk. Um, 
And so do we throw away his song because his character was, you know, questionable? Um, I, I wouldn't, of course not. I, I love, love the song. And so there's, you know, the, the other question that came up recently around this, actually, that's very interesting, is Vicki Beeching. Um, you know, worship leader, came out as a lesbian, um, endorsing, you know, same-sex marriage and all this. What do you, what do, you do with her songs? Do you do, you do her songs? Because uh, her songs have a lot of truth in them. There's some, there's some good stuff in there. Um, so do you, do you continue to do those songs and then put an asterisk in the bulletin? By the way, you know. Um, uh, it's, it's, and, and in some ways, it comes back to that question of, is it worth the cost? You know, is it worth the cost of trying to explain it and all of this? Um, and it, it's, a, it's like the cop-out answer, but that's a question of pastoral discernment. For, for Sojourn, we, we stopped doing Vicki Beeching stuff when she came out. Um, just because we felt like there's a lot of potential for confusion, and because that issue in particular is something that's just always front burner for us in the, in the part of the city that we live in and, um, and in what we've dealt with from the city with regard to sexuality. So, more questions? Yeah, back there. Speak loud. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great question. Um, what would concern me when it comes to hyperbole in, in songs is, are we getting hyperbolic about who God is and what he's done, or are we getting hyperbolic about what a great time we're all having and how much better life is because we're, we're Christians? Um, I think there's a lot of the latter in contemporary, contemporary music. Um, and, and there's a lot of good in contemporary music. Don't get me wrong. I mean, in terms of what we practiced at Sojourn for a long time, our, our approach was on a given Sunday morning, we, we want to split things into, about, into thirds. We want to do about a third of stuff that's kind of local to our congregation, you know, songs that have been written in-house. Um, we want to do about a third of our stuff that's historic um, and about a third of our stuff that's contemporary. Um, and we always kind of, we always kind of, our gravity was away from the contemporary, like modern stuff, um, because, because our worship leaders loved hymns and our worship leaders wrote a lot of good stuff. But it served our congregation really well every time we would sort of push back towards the contemporary stuff. Because as much as we might care about theology, as much as we might have certain lenses that steer us towards RUF and, and uh, sovereign grace and these different things, our congregations are still listening to Christian radio. Um, and listening to Christian music on Pandora and, and all these different places. And so they know those songs. And when, you know, you know uh, my favorite story with this is I fought, um, I fought one of our worship leaders for probably two years on uh, John Mark McMillan's song, How He Loves. I hate that song. Um, and not because of anything that it says, it just, it, it really doesn't have a melody in the verses, Right? And so I, you know, I mean, the sloppy wet kiss lyric is just ridiculous, but, but there's no melody, right? And so, so I fought and I fought and I fought. And then there was, I think we were preaching through John or first John or something. And it was just, there was a Sunday where it was like, you know, the heavens opened and there was a golden light shining on that song in the worship planning meeting. And I just knew I'd lost. I think, I think even some of the pastors were saying, we got to do that song this Sunday. And so, you know, we're multi, multi-site church. Um, and so the guy who was enthusiastic was at this campus. And on that Sunday morning, I was at this campus with a worship leader who, like me, kind of loathed the song. Um, but we decided to do it anyway. And uh, we're playing the song. Or no, we're, we're playing the song before it. And we're kind of playing the outro for it. And the worship leader, like, I'm playing electric guitar. And he walks over to me and he goes, I can't remember how the song starts. You know, I can't remember the opening melody. And of course, the thing I think in my head is, well, there's no melody, just go for it. <laughs> but, but what I said to him is, I mean, what I actually said in the moment was, you're on your own, dude, I can't help you. So, so we, we're playing the intro, and he walks up to the microphone, and right at the point where the verse is supposed to start, he misses it, but the congregation didn't. They all knew it. They sang their hearts. He already had to sing a word. Because um, they knew it, because they'd been listening to it for a year and a half. And so, I mean, it's one of those things I still, to this day, I still feel conflicted about. If somebody asks me, should we do the song? I'm like, I just, 
I don't think it's a singable song. I don't think it's very congregational. But, but, but people, don't, people don't just learn songs the way they used to learn songs where we write these hymns with these great square melodies and it's very simple to follow along. People learn songs by listening to them a thousand times. And you know, you know, nobody can sing like Bono, but if you go to a U2 concert, everybody in the room is singing like Bono because um, they've learned every single nuance of those songs and they're singing their hearts out. And so that's the one, like, that's an important asterisk when it comes to um, contemporary worship music is that, is that stuff that becomes ubiquitous, then it's everywhere and everybody's, you know, uh, your congregation knows it, and if you sing it, you're serving them well. Um, if, you can, if there's not some red flag, you know, <laughs> no theological red flags, no heebie-jeebie stuff, um, then, then sing the song, because it's going to serve the church well, because they know it, and they're excited to. Yeah, I think probably last one. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I have to be honest. I just, I like stability, personally. Um, I think it's good for a church to gather and to know what to expect um, because I think it's part of them internalizing some practices that they can live in more. But that would definitely be an I and not the Lord <laughs> statement. That's just, that's probably more my preference than anything. Um, I think, I think the stability and the repetition is really, really valuable. Um, I think novelty makes me nervous. Like, oh, we've got to do it different. Here's an exciting new way to do it. Um, I think that stuff is, is missing the point oftentimes. Now, if, there's like a, if, you have, if you have a good motivation to do it built around, we're trying to do spiritual formation work, and this enables us to do it better because of X, Y, Z, then have at it. But... Um, um, I think a lot of times that stuff is driven simply by the idea of, well, we've got to do it different because we can't do it the same way that we did it last week. Y'all, the church did it the same way they did it last week for the better part of 1,500 years. Um, and they had, they had their moments of problems, severe problems. But even post-Reformation, um, you know, Luther, like Moeller was talking about, Dr. Moeller was talking about yesterday, like Luther's goal was not to, uh, particularly not to blow up what was happening with worship in the church. It was to make it clear. Um, Calvin's goal, very much the same.